for our hearing of God's Word this morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. God willing, we will complete 1 Thessalonians this morning. So, if you'll turn there with me, and I will read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 23 down through the end of the chapter in verse 28. Once again, do listen as I read God's Word for us, and then we will pray and do our best to consider some rich truths from this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we prepare to open up your word, we sense our tremendous dependence upon you because we know that this word is like no other word. We know we come here uh, not for simply a lesson, but that the Scriptures are indeed the very Word of God, the living Word of God, and in order to lay hold of its wisdom, we need the power and working of the Spirit of God within us. God, we need you to illumine our minds. We need you to uh, make receptive our hearts. We need you to work in ways that give us understanding. Further, we're aware how the scripture teaches us that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we need that tremendous uh, dependence and humility on you and on your word to listen to it and learn from it aright. God, I pray that as we consider a few things this morning in this conclusion of this book, that you would be pleased to make it very blessed, very encouraging, very stirring, and very useful in our own lives, our own understanding, our own walk before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've titled this message, though we'll go into a few other things, the idea of unfolding, ultimate, and unfailing sanctification. Uh, the idea and the issue of sanctification, as well as the uh, other issues of justification, end up being... Issues which are often fought about within the church, which groups divide over. And, and a lot of times the divisions are just over a, a sense of trying to force broad and important biblical terminology to mean only one thing every time you see it. And that's not the case. The scripture uses terms like sanctification in a number of different ways. We've discussed this in the past. The scripture uses the idea even of our sanctification in those ways. It uses our sanctification, our salvation, our justification. These things are, are even our redemption in different ways. We know that we are redeemed. And yet the scripture speaks of us as awaiting the day of our redemption. So are we redeemed or are we yet to be redeemed? And the answer is we are both of those. Are we saved? Are we being saved? Or are we 
awaiting our salvation. And the scripture teaches all of those aspects as well. That there are, there are different expressions uh, to the powerful, salvific, transforming, gracious work of God. And in sanctification, it is no different. And in sanctification, really, that, that idea is in, in consecration, separation unto. And so, a lot of the challenge, and even arguments between groups and divisions is not necessarily because the position one of those groups is holding is wrong. The problem is, the position they're holding is right, but it's not all the truth. And it's not right all the time. The idea of sanctification is taught in a couple of different ways, and let me explain it to you. First of all, it is in the idea of what we call positional sanctification. By nature, we are all children of wrath when we're born into this world. We are carnal, we are of the flesh, we are worldly. The scripture speaks of in the, when the grace of God has poured out upon us in the coming of the Spirit of God that a work takes place where we are sanctified by the Spirit of God. That sanctified by the Spirit of God is a definitive, once for all, positional work. We were of in darkness, now we're in light. We were of the kingdom of this world, now we're of the kingdom of the beloved Son. We, there is a, an absolute change of position. We are now Him, and we are in Him. That is positional sanctification. We've been consecrated, no longer a part of that people, now a part of this people. So, so positional sanctification is one and done, which is good. But some like to think that that's all of the that there is in sanctification. So now, I, I am sanctified. It's a completed act. I got no part in it. Well, this, and, and the, the positional sanctification, to give you some help with that, um, just to establish that I'm not just telling you stories or giving you lessons and lectures, 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says this, but such were some of you in terms of the, the specific practice of lists of wicked activities. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something definitive took place. You were like that, living like that, in that realm, in that world, under the dominion of sin. And now, you're, you've crossed the line. You've been brought across the line. You've been consecrated. You've been separated. It's kind of like this, uh, this word for sanctification is closer in our familiarity with consecration. They would take certain utensils and certain items that would be used, even commonly in the home, even commonly in cooking, and they would consecrate those for the temple use. You know what that meant? Did that mean that suddenly those things became spotless and they would never even get dirty when they were being used? No, it meant they were to be used now exclusively for the temple service and the service of the Lord, and no longer for those other things. It put them in a different realm. It allocated them to another place, a very specific place. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13 says, We ought always to thank God, give thanks to God for you, brothers, 
beloved by God. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. So when God sent forth his salvation, there was a sanctifying, a consecrating work that took place. And there it's, it's done. Further, one more. 1 Peter 1 verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Now in that 1 Peter 2, it begins to transition. We were sanctified in the Spirit for obedience unto Christ. So there is a form of sanctification that is positional. The Spirit has now made us new. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're a, members of a new kingdom. We're members of a new family. There's a total dramatic positional change and now there's going to be a progressive change we who were slaves of sin under the dominion of sin we who whose testimony would have really been screaming out those words even the the most attempting devout jew would scream out those words that are in romans chapter 7 i do the very thing i don't want to do this seeming powerlessness to escape it Whereas Romans 8 comes triumphantly and says what? But now we have become obedient from the heart to the things that have been commanded. This, this change, this from inability to ability, from disobedience, relentless disobedience to an increasingly rigorous obedience unto Christ. So the first sanctification positionally now begins what we might call that second phase of sanctification, which is progressive. We are made more and more transformed degree to degree into the image of Jesus Christ. And this, this idea of what I want us to see in this is, is it's powerful. And it ties in so much for those who are here in the morning with what we were seeing here in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. And, and as I tie it in, it's what some people might say are paradox or there's a mystery. And I'm going to throw that out there. And we just take in God's word. And we just sit back and say, like the psalmist would, well, his ways are too wonderful for me. I, I just, I can't wrap my mind around them, which is fine. Oftentimes when our, we can't wrap our minds around it because it's just too rich and too large. It, it enlarges our hearts and it humbles our minds and it keeps us from being puffed up. But what I want us to see as I begin to dig into this passage, it begins this. Uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, we've looked at the idea of God of peace, but it's important for us to, again, see these things. So often the scriptures are reminding us these things. God is the God of peace. There is no other peace apart from him. Now, this peace, is it a promise of, of peacefulness in the world? See, this is important because what was going on in Thessalonica? They were facing problems. They were under relentless ongoing persecution and he's ending this by telling them the god of peace now they'll look around and they'll say peace where is this peace but the peace isn't by looking around the peace is by looking up and trusting that his power and purposes are at work the peace is by in a sense now as the new man with the new heart 
looking within and seeing the grace of God and his abiding strength to help and enable us. The peace that we have, he's the God of peace because you can't get peace with God any other way. He's the one who sent his son. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says. So he's the one who, who establishes peace. He's the one who secured peace. He's the one who brings us to peace. He's the only hope. There is no other way. But even as I say that, remember, this is written to the church. God of peace is something that is, is warmly received for believers. That's not ultimately how he's declared to those who are not sanctified. To those who are still in the world, he is not a God of peace to them. He is, as we've seen so many times through these passages, he, he is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of vengeance. He is a God of righteousness. And it's very important that we see those things. We've got to fight against that, that the modern tendency to take those elements of the glory of God that, that are most appealing to men and promoting God on the basis of those salient features. God is the God of peace. Do you want peace in your life? Nobody seems to preach God of judgment, God of righteousness, God of vengeance. Because who wants that? The scripture puts all that out there and we take that. But for those of us in Christ, actually the idea, the recognition that he's a God of peace, it bears breadth and depth and richness when we understand that he is the God of wrath, the God of vengeance, the God of judgment, the God who will visit the sins of people upon them. When we understand that and that that's not going to happen to us, he's taken our sins, he's separated them as far as the east is from the west. That we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have confidence and constant access to him. It's remarkable. But I think sometimes because we soft pedal so much, the richness of peace, we don't understand that. That there could be peace with God? I mean, for a lot of pagans, they try to make peace with their gods. Many of us are familiar of the kinds of stories where, oh no, the, the God of this volcano is going to ruin our land, so every year we better find uh, someone to feed to the volcano so that it doesn't get mad to us, to appease it. Well, see, there, there is this idea of judgment and wrath that even men have concerning deities. And their, their design is to appease it. Well, Christ has done more than just appease it. More than just hold it off or postpone it for a season. It, it's, it's, he's, Christ has not brought us to a position where we're not just not under attack, not under threat, not under judgment. But he's brought us into a rich relationship of companionship, of intimacy, of integration, of, of unity, uh, uh, of more than just we're not at war. 
And sometimes we play that too light. Somebody makes a peace accord, it means they're not at war. But it doesn't mean that they, that they now have this rich and powerful interplay. So he is the God of peace. But I want, now, I want to carry on from there. The God of peace, now may the God of peace, in this closing prayer, so to speak, himself sanctify you. So the appeal is, may who sanctify you? Now, part of the question would be this. Well, why would he be saying this to the church? They're only the church because they are sanctified. Yes, but the sanctified must be sanctified until they are sanctified. It's like, what? Now, I know that sounds weird. The sanctified, separated and consecrated unto Christ, must be sanctified, continually conformed to, progressively made into the likeness of Christ until we are finally and ultimately like Him. When we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That full and finished work. And, and so, when you, when you just get the small pieces, and you get a part of the truth, and you own that truth, but you own that truth to the exclusion of other truths, truth can even be a stumbling block. That's horrible. We've got to be prayerful and patient uh, because the scriptures do things. So to those who are already sanctified, he's praying that God himself would sanctify them. Now, I want to note, note this. God himself would sanctify them. Make some people think this. If God is the one who's going to sanctify me, then here's my part. Yeah. All right. He's got this. Because he is going to sanctify me. I'm not going to apply any effort. I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to be diligent. I'm just going to say, sanctify me. Mm. Well, what we don't understand is, at times is when we plead with God, or the way that God himself sanctifies us is by stirring up our desire for godliness in moving us with a, with a zeal for piety, in giving us desires to do what is right. God himself works with him by giving us the power and the energy to do the things that he's called us to do. So he works in us and through us. He works even in our working. And that sometimes gets a little confusing for people, so let's do a little looking in the scriptures. Part of this is because we struggle in this day and age. We, we think that we get to define the parameters of, of what God is permitted to do and what, he, what he's not permitted to do. You know, whether, all right, he can do that, sunrise and all those things, and uh, big scale events and things outside, but somehow we think that once... Once you get inside of here, yeah, he has no right to affect my thoughts. He has no right to change my desires. My thoughts are my own and my desires are my own. And nobody tells me what to do and nobody tells me what to think because I am me. 
and my will is supreme. I'm sorry, that's not true. And I want to show you from the scriptures, first of all, from the negative and then from the positive, look at a few things, and sometimes these things make people uncomfortable, but if verses make us uncomfortable, wherein lies the problem? Yeah, we got a problem if verses make us uncomfortable. If, if we say, well, that, those passages are not compatible with my view of God, then what needs to change? Our view of God. Yeah, or some people say, or, or let's use a different translation. But that doesn't always help you escape. Psalm 105, verse 12 to 14 says this. Speaking of uh, the children of Israel, when they were few in number and of little account and sojourned in the land, wandering from nation to nation and from kingdom, one kingdom to another, verse 14, it says of God, he allowed no one to oppress them. So here they were wandering around. He rebuked kings on their account. So they're wandering around and it says, God, he allowed no one to oppress them. Now I have a question. But what if they wanted to? Well, if they wanted to, they still couldn't carry out their desire because he didn't allow them to. Whether he removed that desire from them, whether he distracted them with other imminent threats or responsibilities, God was absolutely in control of it. What he allowed could have been through other means. They, they were getting ready to oppress Israel, but then they were attacked by another enemy. Okay. Well, why were they attacked by another enemy? Who put it into the heart of that enemy to attack them? Well, it was their own decision. But why at that time on that day? And let's see a little more in Psalm 105. Now, you're not going to like this. Because it makes us uncomfortable. Listen what it says. Psalm 105 verse 24 and 25 says this. The Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. This is while they were in slavery in Egypt. Verse 25. He turned the hearts, their hearts, to hate his people and deal craftily with his servants. Excuse me? He did what? So all of the problem that the children of Israel faced under, under the uh, tremendous abuse that came to them from the Egyptians, this, this horrible hatred that even rose to the level of killing off their male children, and, and this oppressive work that, it, that he turned their hearts to hate them, some people, even believers, I can't accept that. Uh, okay, I have trouble understanding that. That's an acceptable response. I can't accept it is unacceptable because what you're saying is this. God misrepresented himself here. God misspoke. No, he turned their hearts to hate. Why? In turning their hearts to hate... They were oppressed, and what did they do under their oppression? They cried out to God for deliverance, and then what did God do? In response to their cry for deliverance, which he, in a sense, provoked, he sent Moses, and he went in, and he delivered them. But wait a second, you're saying that God can even affect what 
men's, even unbelievers' hearts, like and don't like, love and hate, that God can control the desires and wills of all men, even those who aren't his people? Well, aren't his people in a special relationship? Yes, but there is a sense in which not only are all people his, the cattle on a thousand hills are his, the hosts of the heavens are his, everything that exists, who does it belong to? Who made it? Who owns it? Keep going with me and we'll see just a couple more negatives before we get into the positive. In Exodus chapter 10 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, this is before he goes in, before the plagues have, done, have come, Go into Pharaoh, Exodus 10.1. Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Now this is when? Before he's even gone to talk to him, what has God done in advance? Hardened his heart. So it says basically, and this, when you go there, he's not going to listen to you. But this is what you're going to say. And he's not going to listen to you because I've hardened his heart. Well, why would you do something like that? He says, I've hardened his heart. Listen, not only his heart, and the heart of his servants. That I may show these signs of mine among them. To show forth his tremendous power shown in those plagues. God himself would harden their hearts. Can God do that? At this point, it's not can God do that. It's did God do that. And it's not even a question anymore. It's a statement. God did that. Well, I, I can't imagine why God would do like it. That's okay. I always remind us, if, if you can't imagine why God would do it that way, why God would act that way, why God purposed it that way, that makes a lot of sense because God's ways are not your ways and God's thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, his ways above our ways, his thoughts above our thoughts. Isaiah makes that very clear to us. But we so often still tend to insist, nah, well, why would God do it that way? Justify that decision to me. Explain it to me in a way that I think, okay, that's acceptable. Is that how we think of God? We like to say no, but there's just a little part of us that still tends to think, well, why did he do it like that? And sometimes we start to think, and I've met many of the, the students in the seminary look at that and think, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, I said, well, please keep saying seem fair. Don't say that's not fair because you're just wrong then. <laughs> it doesn't seem fair because our sense of justice is twisted by our humanity. And we just have those limitations. One more last of the negativos. In Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 30. We have the uh, Sihon the king of Heshbon. It says would not let us pass by him. Children of Israel passing through the wilderness. Not would not let him pass by. Why not? Why would this man not let the children of Israel pass by? They had even, they had even sent in there, look, we're not going to take anything. We're just going to stay on the highway. We're not going to go off it. Nothing. Pass through. Done. Second option, if we need anything, water or food, we'll buy it. 
The guy said no, which seems unreasonable. Why would he be so unreasonable? Well, let's figure it out. He would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is today. What? So why did God do it? So that he would come against him in battle and God would give them the victory over a powerful king making known his power and his protection and provision. But why did this king come against them? He wanted to. Why did he want to? Why was he resistant? Why was he obstinate? Stop this whole, this, this notion of every decision a man makes is the result of his own free will. God is not bound by the will of any man or any creature. God is able to change every will. God is able to change every heart. God is able to change every thought. He can harden it. He can soften it. He can close it. He can open it. For just a moment, we all need to really stop and understand this. God is absolutely God. In its fullest sense. Let's see in the positive now. Or how about one last negative? Yeah, one last negative. I know you're waiting on that. Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, because this is a powerful one, and this is one that always shocks, so, so remarkably demonstrates, demonstrates the hardness of men's hearts. The children of Israel cried out to God. They viewed the plagues. So many of the plagues uh, came on Egypt, but they were spared from it. They passed through on dry ground, and then the water covered the others. Water out of a rock manna from heaven, quails from the sky, victory over powerful enemies, the voice of God thundering the Ten Commandments audibly for them all to hear with fear. Would any of them for a moment think, I wonder if God's real. Would that be a possibility? I wonder if God exists. I wonder if God's powerful. I wonder if He's who He says He is. You would think in... For all intents and purposes, if anybody from the freedom of supposed men's will should have been able to understand, he is God, he is God alone, we need to follow him with all of our hearts, wouldn't it have been them? When they were disobedient, what happened? fire on the outskirts of the camp burning up people. When a group rebelled, what happened? The earth opened and it swallowed people whole. When they were rebellious, snakes came out and began to bit them. And he, and he provided, how will they recover from these snake venoms? Well, they're going to make a brass serpent and they're going to put it up there. And when you get bit, go look at that. Now, I will admit in advance, I don't have any professional medical training. I can access WebMD, but that's about all I got. But I'm pretty sure that's not an anti-venom. So medically, that should not work, right? But did it? Yes. 
Well, scientifically, should the water open up? No. But did it? Yes. Because who is in control of all that we deem science and all that indeed exists in creation? God. Now, after seeing all of those things, this is what the Word of God says. Uh, as Moses speaks to them at the end of Deuteronomy. But to this day, the reason why they continued to rebel when if anyone should have ever been faithful, it should have been those people. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. If anybody in their humanity would have supposedly been able to exercise their free will to obey God with all rationality and all sensibility, they should have, but they didn't because they couldn't. Because the effects of, this, of sin because of Adam are so profound upon men that we are dead in our trespasses and sin that until God gives, until God turns our hearts, until he gives us eyes to see, until he gives us ears to hear, it doesn't happen. So God can harden. God can leave us under the influence of our own hardened hearts and sin and deception. And God can open and grant and give. Now let's look at some positives real quick here. The turn of that. He didn't give that to them in Deuteronomy. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says this in verse 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart. Now when God gives someone a new heart... Now, we know this is figurative, right? And spiritual. When he gives them a new heart, what happens? Heart being often spoken of as the seat of our affections and desires. So when he gives a new heart, now what happens? You have different affections and different desires. And as a result of that, you make different decisions. Let's keep, let me keep reading that. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So not only a new heart, but a heart that's going to be under the sway and influence of the spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ways. In my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. So who wants to raise their hand and say not fair? Don't I get a choice in this? He's going to cause me to walk in his ways. How is he going to cause me to walk in his ways? When he gives you a new heart and a new spirit. He causes you by giving you new desires that causes you to make new decisions. That causing you ends up being a cooperative causing because you are now united to him and his spirit is within you. Salvation is what we, would, we call monergistic. All of God. He alone saves. The working out and living out of our salvation is actually synergistic because now we are a new creation in Christ. What we couldn't do and wouldn't do before, we now 
will do, and increasingly because we are a new creation in Christ. We want to do that now because we have a new heart. We are inclined to that because we have a new spirit. And so he will cause us to. So when we've done it, is it us who's done it or is it he who's done it? And that's, the, that's kind of the mystery. And Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the rest. So who worked harder? Paul did. He's saying, I applied more diligent effort. He was actually involved in it. But then he goes on to say, what? Though it was not I, really in the sense that it was not I alone and independently, because he already started by saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It was not I, but the grace of God that is at work in me. So I'm not going to claim all the credit because I know that I'm working harder. Why? Because he's given me a new heart. Because he's given me those desires. Because he's given me his spirit. Because he's moving me and motivating me and inclining me and putting these desires and thoughts within me. Same thing that it says in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10 as well as Jeremiah 32. Speaking of the new covenant, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Such a tremendous change. It's interesting even to think of um, the way that the scriptures speak of um, when the children of, of Israel were coming out of Egypt. Other bizarre things happened that you would have, we would have never thought. It says this in Psalm 105, verse 37. He, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold... And there was none from his tribe who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they were departed, for they were in dread of, dread had fallen upon them. Now listen to what it says in Exodus 12 of them. It says, verse 35, the people of Israel had also done what Moses asked them. As they're leaving, they asked the Egyptians, verse 35 of Exodus 12, for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, you know. Go, just go get out of here. Okay, we're leaving. Hey, you mind giving us your silver and gold and good clothing? Now, does that seem like, man, that, just get out. You're lucky to be leaving. They ask them for it. And what do they do? Well, listen to what it says. Verse 36. And the Lord, listen, had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they gave them what they asked. So they asked for the silver and gold and they gave it to them. Why? Because God inclined them to desire to give away their gold and silver and fine clothes to their former slaves that they're already losing that are leaving. Does any of that make sense? A lot of times the not make sense stuff is for us to sit there and think, wow, what a powerful God. This is astounding. I mean, that they, he would tell them to ask and that he would t 
turned the Egyptians' hearts to desire them to ask. He would give them favor, a favorable response. And then there's a dread and fear involved in that. Get out, take everything, go. Instead of an obstinate fighting, just want us to understand how in control God is of every moment and every part of it. That's why, for example, I want to just draw our attention to one more thing to, to, to put these pieces together. Well, go with me, if you would, to Isaiah. Many of us who are doing the McShane reading have been reading through Isaiah. In Isaiah, first of all, in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah chapter 10, God is sending the king of Assyria against rebellious Israel as his rod of wrath and his rod of judgment. And as he goes there, he carries out the work of God, and, and, but he does not think that he has done it. It actually tells us in, in verse uh, 6, it says, against a godless nation, I send him against the people of my wrath, I command him. So why is this king of Assyria coming against the children of Egypt? God is sending them, it's at his command. Right? But look at verse 7. But he does not intend so, and his heart does not think so. So this king thinks, whose decision was it? I'm doing it. It's my will. It's my decision. No one makes me do anything I don't want to do. And I'm going against Israel. Not realizing the very thing that he thinks he's doing by the independent exercise of his will is at the very command of God. Even if you listen to his own words, listen to what he thinks he's saying in verse 13 of chapter 10. By my strength and by my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I did these things. It was all me. And then what does God say to him down in verse 15? Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnifies itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield itself over him who lifts it up, or a staff should lift up him who is not wood, Therefore, the Lord of hosts is going to send a wasting sickness. So here this man goes at God's command. But even as God has turned his heart and attention to do that, he's doing it exactly what God wants, exactly when God wants, fulfilling that purpose perfectly. But he's doing it not in a willful submission to God. He's doing it in an arrogant thought that this is me and I'm doing it. So once he's done doing it at God's direction and command, because of his pride and arrogance, what is God then going to do? Judge him for his pride and arrogance in carrying out the very thing God sent him to do. Mm. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, it tells us in verse 28, this uh, says this, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, this is God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Now go down with me uh, to chapter 45, all right, this is verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. 
to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors. Verse 2, I will go before him and level places. I will break them in pieces. Verse 3, I will give him the treasures. But I want us to, uh, but when, when uh, all this is going on, he is, he is unaware that it is God who's doing it. Because look what it says in verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, Cyrus. And then what does it say? I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no other. I equip you, though you do not know me. So at what point are we going to start to realize the scripture teaches this? God is absolutely God. And not that all men are at all times puppets on a string. God has created men with wisdom, with minds, with volition and activity. A lot of what men undertake and do is carrying out the desires and intentions of their own heart when permitted by God, when fulfilling his purposes. But we have to understand this. When God wants to and if he chooses to pull the string, he can. And he does. And he has every right to. Because it's all his. We, I remind you of, 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 of that, the closing phrase always there in, in Romans chapter 9, I mean chapter 11, for from him and to him and through him are all things. Everything is ultimately to or for God. We get it all confused and, and, and it messes with us. We've got to understand this. May God himself sanctify you. He will sanctify you, but it's by putting desires for godliness in your heart. He sanctifies you. But, so how do I know if he's, he's sanctifying me? How do I know if I'm one of the sanctified and, and I'm going to be ultimately sanctified in the future? Do you have those desires now? Has he written his law on your heart and put it in your mind. Has he given you a new heart that causes you to walk in his commandments? Do you or do you not have different affections and different desires to live pleasing to God? Because that's how he himself sanctifies you. By he himself turning your hearts, turning your desires, turning your will to do what's right. And if you don't. It's because you haven't been sanctified. Now let, let's let's see a, see a little bit further in this, and then we'll bring it to to uh, to the rest of this section. Philippians chapter two says this. Philippians two verse twelve to sixteen. Therefore, my beloved, just as I've always you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, he calls on the people of God to what work. Out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. So that for a moment there, what does it sound like? It's on me. I've got to do it. Work out your own salvation. And that's a command. 
So I have to take responsibility for that. I am answerable for my effort. But even as it says that, it goes on in the very next verse so that we're re reminded, it, even though you need to take all that responsibility upon you, the power and ability and the sure progress does not rest wholly on you as a man. But now that you have become, even as we saw in 1 Peter, a partaker of the divine nature. Now that the power of God, everything necessary for life and godliness has been granted to you. So it says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Well, how do I know that God is at work within me? Those that God is at work within are themselves committed to working out their salvation. Why? Because part of God's powerful working is to incline, direct our will to His ways. Informed by His Word. For it is God who is at work within you. And what does the rest of that verse say? Both to will. Wait a second. Isn't my will free? For the, the believer says, praise God, my will is not free. <laughs> I'm so thankful that God is going to keep me on the right path. I mean, it's, it's that idea where do we not want him to steer us in the right direction? If people are getting these slowly, cars are becoming more and more automatic. You know, and I like to think children, maybe someday grandchildren, if they're driving and for whatever momentary distraction that may be going on or whatever's happening in their life, uh, the car begins to veer and go off, I'd be all right if that car, as, it's, as it starts to veer off because they've become distracted or whatever, if, it's, if the car just kind of moves itself back. That'd be all right with me because what would that do? Provide safety. Now, what person in their right mind would, would see that the car was veering off and then it corrected safely to the right path and say, I didn't do that. And just yank the wheel and go off the road. You know, How dare something intervene to keep me on the right way? I'm going to go where I... Well, Anyone that obstinate, what does it tell you? Yeah, God's not at work within them. He is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is a glorious thing. So that, often, so that when God inclines our will and directs us back from, from the deviation that we've been moving towards, we actually say, thank you, Lord. You know, I, I don't even want to get that close to the line anymore. I, I'm... I'm I'm staying. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply, apply even more effort. And so the idea doesn't become, well, it's self-correcting, so I know I don't have to apply the effort. It's I want to apply even more effort. And even that desire to apply the more effort comes from Him. So that's why it's by the grace of God I am what I am. It's not I who do it, but the grace of God in me. So powerfully working. 
within our lives. Now, I do need to move on very quickly. So we've seen the idea of, of uh, unfolding uh, ultimate and unfailing sanctification. Now, here's the reason why we see that it is absolutely unfailing as we come back to our passage in Thessalonians. This is what it says in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Oh, my. See, so the ultimate success, the sure guarantee of our ultimate sanctification that we will be blameless before him when he comes does not rest on us. Our increasing faithfulness is sure because he is surely faithful. Do we follow that? He is faithful. He will surely do this. That's why it is a tremendous mystery. Now, I've got to quickly... The rest of the points are just in closing points, and this was the one that is more complicated. So let me, let me draw our attention to the concluding things before we uh, in this chapter. After we see that, that little prayer, he moves on to say this in verse uh, 25. Brothers, pray for us. I mean, just a simple statement, but... Here's my fear sometimes, and this is what happens. Simple statements, familiar statements. What happens? We just breeze past them. We don't think about them. So I'd like to just slow us down for a brief minute. Brothers, pray for us. Who's asking for this prayer? Well, this is an apostle. This is a faithful one. Why would he need prayer? I mean, this is a man of God. This is a man who's been serving. This is a man who has accomplished so many things. Brothers, pray for us. It's such an understanding of our need for prayer. It, that even he, even he as an apostle, he as the one who's instructing, is not simply a thing, not wanting to even to convey to them that his confidence for where he's at, where he's going, who he is, and what's going to be accomplished is somehow in his hands. He needs divine enablement, divine guidance, divine empowerment, divine assistance. He needs God's hand at all times. And that, that declaration, brothers, pray for us. It lays that out there. We, just like you, are in need. We, just like you, depend entirely on God. In Romans 15, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Even further, in 2 Corinthians verse 11, it says this, you must also help us by prayer. So I, when you hear that phrase, I want you to understand this. To the apostle, prayer is not something that you're just doing. But help us by your prayers. There is the confidence that prayer is purposeful. That God so works in how he inclines our hearts to petition on behalf of his people. To, to incline us, to move us, to carry out, to fulfill his purposes. Prayer has powerful effect. It's, we use this phrase, and I want us to be more careful about it generally. Something's happened, something's going on, some event is there, and, and we might say this. 
there's nothing I can do, so we'll just pray. Oh, my. Really? How about this? There's nothing better we can do. There's nothing more impactful we can do, so we'll first pray. And then if there's anything else practical that we can do, we'll also contribute in that way. But should we not consider the most profound engagement and help in any situation to be prayer? And then everything else kind of secondary to that. But we've kind of piled everything else in first. And when all practical involvement and assistance fail, I can't do anything. Um, I'll just pray. You know, we'll just have to pray. No, we will pray. You know, we'll just have to pray and, and, and hope God works everything. What? That's not. We will pray and trust God. It's a different avenue. And, and, and I just love the strength of that. Brothers, pray for us. It also reminds us as, he's, as we're called to work out our own salvation, there still is this interdependence. Pray for us. Pray for one another. So there is a connection we have with God. There is a responsibility we have within ourselves. And then there is a connection that we have to one another. We've got to continue to encourage and build up those things. Um, it also indicates kind of that they're united in purpose. In, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, it says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us that we may have, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. So pray for us that our hearts would be right and our conscience would be right. Pray for us that the ministry that we're doing would bear success. Pray for us that we would have strength against all the things that are going on. We need at all times inside for what's going on in our hearts, for what's going on outside, for the circumstances regarding ministry, in all factors and all facets, we need prayer. Now, the pray for us always comes on the heels of how often earlier in the books he said, will say, we pray for you unceasingly. <laughs> the last two thoughts that are here before we close, and they're quick ones. It says, greet Verse 26, greet all the saints with a holy kiss. Again, that's something that we can take in passing, but I'm not going to let us take it in passing. This is a very important thing, and it, it hails over to, we, we see a lot of different things. In James chapter 2, it talks about how some of them were showing partiality. A rich person comes in with gold rings. Here, have, have this seat. And the other person comes in poor and in rags, sit at my feet, showing partiality and preference and judgment. Within, the, within every culture around the world, there are degrees of discrimination that take place. Everywhere. People are going to tell you it's only in America. No, 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 no. It is absolutely everywhere that discrimination takes place. If it's, if it's, not, if it's not race, it's clan, it's tribe... If it's not those things, it's uh, social standing, financial influence, position. There are constantly reasons for people to divide. And generally speaking, in those days, if you were to meet somebody of equal standing, maybe someone who is also of your own uh, people and community, you would greet them with a kiss. 
but if, if uh, someone, the next door neighbor's servant comes to your door to deliver some vegetables from their garden, you weren't greeting that servant with a kiss. If the neighbor came over, you would greet him because he was equal with you. But the other guy, not so much. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It, it, it's, it's not just giving, uh, explaining a godly greeting. It's basically saying this, among you, there's no distinction. There's no partiality. You, you don't go rich and poor. Skin tones make no difference. Hairstyles, hair colors, musical preference, none of that. We are all one in Christ. We are all equal. We are all heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We are all brothers and sisters, members of the household of God, the same family. There can and must be no distinctions among you. None of that matters. It is ultimately irrelevant. Greet the saints with a holy kiss. Make sure discrimination and distinctions don't exist among you. That's the, that's the deeper sense of greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't, don't separate from people with a sense of superiority or a sense of inferiority. Treat one another with love, respect, honor, and intimacy. And lastly, it says... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And how perfect an ending because the beginning, the ending, the strength, the enablement, the ground of all our standing and hope is the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's not for that grace, there's no salvation. If it's not for that grace, there, there's... None of the aspects of salvation, none of the aspects of justification. There's no reconciliation. There's no sanctification. Without the grace of God in Christ Jesus, there's nothing. And so, again, reminding that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Even when he says that, here's, here's the rich thing that we can draw from that. When grace has begun, it is with us. He will never leave us. We also know he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. More than just a salutation, it's a reminder. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us. And so in the moments of hardship, in the moments of trial, in the moments of struggle, what can we do say? We could say this, more grace, Lord, more grace. And because of Christ, abundant grace is ours. Always available. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, thankful to spend time in your word. And even though uh, in order to finish this, we extended the time a little bit, I pray that you would cause the time to be, have been fruitful. Lord, the richness of um, the consecrated nature of the believer um, and you bringing it to perfect completion, working so mysteriously and swaying and, and uh, changing our very wills. We pray that you would continue to do that. We're thankful for your grace. Lord, we pray that we would be persistent in prayer, aware of our needs and aware of one another's needs, and that we would be willing even more frequently to engage one another with such requests and to be fervent in doing that on one another's behalf. 
Lord, we thank you for the family of faith that we are a people um, who, are, who are distinct from this world, but without discrimination among us because we are all one in Christ. And we thank you that for our confidence that we're grounded in the unending grace because of the eternal Son of God who is given for us. We thank you that it's given to us by the power of an unchangeable and unending life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.